You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Australia. I'm Matt. I help connect businesses with tech talent, and today I'm your host. Another Evolution Exchange podcast. Today I'm joined by four senior leaders within both the Sydney and Melbourne engineering industry, where yet again, uh, from a couple of weeks ago, we're going to tackle the topic of effective leadership. Um, to, to kind of kick things off, uh, what I'm going to do is I'll start with uh, Denise. I'll, I'll get you to introduce yourself, um, you know, who you are and where you're from. Thanks, Matt. So I'm Denise Openshaw. I'm a software delivery and transformation executive and consultant. I'm from Sydney and I'm currently uh, currently working as a, a principal consultant with uh, with equal, equal experts. Um, I think uh, you sort of asked um, what, what are we passionate about as well? So I'm completely passionate about helping helping teams um, and and organisations uh, deliver and and transform. And I, I love helping other leaders grow in their their leadership journey and help them get the the best from their their to empower their teams and get their the best from their teams. So. Awesome. Thanks, that today's. Next, I'll pass it on to Ankin. If you could introduce yourself, please. Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Ankan Sikar. Um, I'm currently working as an engineering manager in Ulysex. Um, and as part of that, um, look after quite a various squads in various streams. And also, in terms of the passion, I love to work with people and also try to bring new capability into the organization, into the ecosystem, helping team to achieve that. And I think the one Dennis mentioned as well, like, how can we help team to grow into the organization as well, into that kind of the career path as well? Thanks. Awesome. Thanks, Anakin. And Connor, moving on to you next. Hi, I'm Connor Hughes. I'm uh, Artesian Alternative Investments at CTO. Um, Artesian's a VC firm. I'm responsible for data and AI and ML strategy um, and for VC platform as a service and uh, cybersecurity as well. Awesome. Thanks, Connor. And last but not least, James. Hey, so yeah, uh, engineering manager at Lexicon Digital. Uh, it's a new role to me. I've sort of worked in consulting for about uh, 10 years or so, and this is probably my first uh, step into, into management. Lexicon Digital, it's a, a growing digital consultancy. We were founded um, in 2016. We're now at, now at uh, over 100 people. So. In a nutshell, we work closely with clients from like the ideation and design phase through to implementation um, and help them deliver digital experience across mobile and web. I'd say my day-to-day -day is spent growing and managing our expanding team of engineers, currently spending a lot of time in recruitment, which obviously we're having a, a chat about before we hit record. Um, and yeah, given the market, the talent market so, so tough at the moment, it's definitely one of our focuses and we're madly hiring. So. Look, yeah, just enjoying the challenge at the moment and, and learning a lot. Awesome. Thanks, that, James. Well, look, we'll move kind of straight into it now and we'll start off with a bit of a preface question that that I know I only spoke to everyone about just before we jumped on, but just to get an understanding, get everyone's thoughts on. The first one is what is effective leadership, but we're looking for wrong answers only. So maybe, you know, what isn't effective leadership and 
James, you pose this. So I'll, I'll get you to start <laughs> and, and give us your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, I guess effective leadership is is criticizing somebody on a com on a company wide conference call. Uh, I would say that that's yeah, remembering, you know, wrong answers only. Um, what else? I would say like autocratic leadership, you know, that's super important for effective leadership. Basically, you don't want to care about people's strengths, weaknesses, ambitions. It's like you just need them to do a job. And based on their fear of losing that job, they, you know, they're going to do that job and they're going to do that job well. Um, so, yeah, I would, pr I would probably say for me, it comes down to those two points. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Connor, I'll move, move on to you next. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, echoing what James says, um, autocratic leadership. I think if you saw the, the fear, uncertainty and doubt in Vladimir Putin's direct reports when they were greenlighting the invasion of Ukraine, I think that's definitely uh, an anti-pattern for leadership. Um, micromanagement is also something that's, um, you know, very poor leadership quality, um, indecisiveness. So taking time to make decisions, um, you know, something that um, can really annoy your direct reports. I think it's also important to recognize that as a leader, you play an outsized role in influencing an organization and, and you know, everyone else uh, follows in your, in your path. So any anti-patterns, any negative leadership traits will cascade through the, through the organization, which will have bad results. Awesome. Thanks for that. Denise, moving on to you next. Um, I think uh, a couple of things that stand out for me is just not listening to people. Like I've seen managers before who have been driving teams to, to deliver for a certain date and the teams have been raising the roadblocks that stand in their way um, and leaders just not listening to that, not doing anything about that and still pushing for the, you know, the, the outcomes that they were looking for. Um, and I'll ask you to come back to me because I had one other thought and it slipped my mind. So that's all right. That's all right. We'll come back. And, and Anakin, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is a great question to start with. So I kind of agree with all of your points. Um, and effective leadership for me, obviously, which is not, uh, is that um, you can do kind of like thinking that you know everything and you can do micromanage and you can say, show me to the code level and make sure that why it's wrong, criticizing every single way and not really focusing on uh, how the other person is feeling, right? Lack of empathy, like why you even need to show empathy for, for the leadership. Mm. So those are the specs, I think, yeah. Yeah, nice, nice. Did, did it come back to you, Denise? Or if not, we can, we can move on. Yeah, no, no, the other one is just telling people and a little bit, it's sort of related, I guess, to market management is just telling people how to solve things, how to do things, rather than helping them explore options themselves and allowing them to make that that decision. So, yeah. yeah, and I think it probably comes back a little to market management, but it also comes back to um, providing, giving them the fish rather than teaching them how to fish, if that makes sense. So. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Hopefully, that, I think that gives some people some context as to what not to be in that. So, we'll lead into the first proper question, I guess you could say, uh, which is again by James. And the question is, how can servant leadership be used to lead effectively? So, I'll get you, James, to give context uh, and, and answer that one as well. Yeah, cool. So, I guess leadership, servant leadership is a term that I'd heard been used and kind of thrown around. And I think I didn't really... Like, I guess I, I pose the question to the group because I'm genuinely interested to hear what other people think. So 
I think just a bit of background, like it was first coined in 1970 as a response to like the traditional command and control forms of leadership. So the difference is that servant leaders are leaders who primarily focus on the growth and well-being of, of the people in their organization. So instead of telling them what to do, servant leaders make sure their team's needs and needs are met. And the idea is that through making people better, um, they're going to perform better at their job and people who perform better at their job overall lead to better outcomes for their organization. So I guess that's the that's the theory behind it. One of the reasons why I think it it appeals to me is I think it aligns quite well with naturally how I approach leadership. Um, I was saying, you know, I'm not somebody to stand up in front of a group of people and give inspirational sort of speeches. There's a saying like lead from behind and that's always made sense to me. And it's, it's probably a saying that I think I can identify with. And I think servant leadership also aligns to that. So I think in essence, you know, good servant leaders show a lot of empathy and awareness towards the people they serve. Um, stepping into the role last year, one of the first things I did is sit down and have one-on-one um, catch-ups with, with everybody. And part of the reason of doing that is so I can understand a bit more about them, what are their ambitions, what makes them tick. Uh, and, you know, through doing that, you naturally, I guess, establish like a deeper connection with people. Um, and it helps, helps you form like a, a clearer mental model of the people who, who are reporting to you or, or who you're, you sort of um, have, have a level of responsibility for. We've got something like 60 engineers in Lexicon at the moment. Um, it took a lot of time to have all those catch-ups, but I feel like it was really well worth it. Um, and I think part of my role at the moment is trying to align what do, what do people want to do? What do, what do they want to get out of their time with us at Lexicon versus what are the demands and needs of our clients from a skills and opportunities perspective? And so you kind of have to have that connection to people, connection with people to understand what they want so you can do that matchmaking really well. I think probably the most fulfilling part of my job is when I can take somebody who has clearly defined, you know, ambitions, what they want from a, 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 their next role and put them in a client and uh, and basically both both sides are really happy, you know, like the client saying this is such a good opportunity and the client's also singing their praises because they're, um, you know, they're doing such a good job. So, yeah, I think for me, you know, that that is, is born out of, of servant leadership. I, I think I could I could easily take like an autocratic approach and say this person's going to be assigned here without any kind of real consideration about what it is they want to do. Um, but obviously that's just, that's not going to work right. And that person's not going to grow and it's not going to, it's not going to result in good outcomes for the business. Yeah. Thanks for that answer, James. Uh, Connor, I'll move on to you next and get your thoughts. Yeah. So for me, servant leadership, um, focuses on the, the growth and wellbeing of, of your team. Um, and, you know, needing to understand the needs and goals of your direct reports, um, listening more and you know not talking down or you know talking less um it's a skill and standing up for those uh, who work for you um knowing that you know you've you know, I've, I've said to my teams that i've got um an umbrella to shield you from what rains down from above um your job is to ensure that i don't need to open it very often and uh yeah, that's something that's uh it's worked well for me in the past. Um, somebody who's been quite inspiring um, for me over the last week has been the Ukrainian president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, who's been, um, who's, who seems to be the epitome of a servant leader. Um, you know, he's 
been a surprise. He's got a background uh, as an entertainer, and uh, yeah, he seems to be um, as inspired by the spirit of his people as um, as much as he inspires them. And I think that's something to aspire to. Thanks, Connor. And moving on to you next, Denise. Yeah, so I think um, I'm going to sort of reverse the uh, the question that James put in there in terms of, you know, how can a servant leadership be used to lead effectively? I, I don't think command and control leadership can be used to lead effectively. Um, so it can certainly be used to lead, but I wouldn't say effectively. Um, and I think the, the reason for that is the the longer you spend in uh, your career and the higher up the ladder you get, the more removed you get from the, the customer, um, the more removed you get from your technical background. And so the people that have better access to understanding what the customer needs and more recent technical capability to make decisions for on behalf of the customer and on behalf of the, the organisation, are actually the the people in the team, and so to to assume that you know as a I mean I started life way back when as a developer, but there is um, it's a very long time since I cut any code. So um, if I was to assume that I could make architectural decisions or design decisions or even you know decisions for what a customer needs for product, is um, not only um, incredible hubris, but um, it's uh, it's very unlikely to, to lead to a particularly good outcome. So I think servant leadership and empowering, to setting teams with a, a mission and a goal and empowering them to deliver on that goal is the only way to lead effectively. Um, and one of the things we haven't yet talked about, and I think it's important to get out there, is around building trust and the and the two way. Uh, the two-way trust mechanism of servant leadership. So the fact that you trust teams and empower teams to make these decisions um, and then a whole bunch of other things around sort of the, the servant leadership um, capability with, you know, that Connor and James mentioned, sort of listening, um, you know, empowering, et cetera. Um, you get that trust back. Um, which is important for some of the other questions that we plan to talk about later, because that trust is what will um, mean that teams will come to you when they have a problem. So. Yeah. Thanks, Anne. Uh, Ankin, what are your, what's your thoughts on this one? Yeah, yeah, I think I do agree all these points and a um, few things to highlight, right? So I think the listening is very important. Uh, when you, so when you do the one-on-ones, we I, I usually like love to just send what's the career path the individual team member is actually uh, trying to achieve in the next six months or next one year and what are his strengths as well. So I guess focusing on the strength of the individual team member is quite, quite important. Bring the best out of uh, everyone. Um, and also sometimes there, there, there needs to have a bit of an opportunity where if you think about an effective leader, right? I think the difference between the manager and the leader is that the leader needs to be a bit more visionary, uh, has to have a bit of a clarity in terms of the direction, and also kind of like never never scared of experimenting, right? And that experimentation only doesn't mean that when you're actually launching code or something, right? It could be sometimes in the career path, people love to experiment. Uh, they might not be ready for that role yet, 
But if they have enough interest and passion, how can you guide them? How can you coach them um, and, and trust their instinct as well and, and, and promote those things and uh, figure out what are the things you can help him to present himself best across the wider audience and, and grow himself within the organization. So absolutely agree that like servant leadership is kind of the de facto standard here to, to become an effective leader. Awesome. Thanks, Nankin. I think we could cover a fair bit there. Is there anything else anyone had that thought of along the way they wanted to, to add into that? All good. All good. All right. Moving on to the next question, which was put forward by Connor, which is, has the COVID-19 pandemic changed the leadership? So I'll get you to, to kick that one off, Connor, and give us your thoughts on that one. Yeah. Um, I think uh, as a leader, the real test is how you perform. It's not how you perform the good times, it's how you perform under duress um, or in a crisis, whether that be a escalating set one that's brought down an online banking environment or a COVID crisis. Um, and during COVID, I think we've seen a, a change in leadership style from traditional command and control um, authoritative leadership to a more um, positive team climate empowerment um, and environments where there's psychological safety, uh, which you know, empowers teams to be high performing. Awesome. Thanks for that. And I'll uh, move on, change it up a bit. James, what, what are your thoughts on this one? Hey, uh, yeah. Sorry, I feel like I'm going to give a long answer, so I apologise in advance. <laughs> I would say, um, yeah, look, I, I think yes and no is the answer. I feel like with COVID-19, it's, um, it's probably even more important that leadership are doing things, well, two things in particular they should be doing anyway. I think probably having empathy, like showing empathy towards everybody's situation. Obviously, COVID's affected everybody in different ways, whether it's physical health, mental health, uh, financially, um, and also just to make sure people remain engaged and have that connection back to company. Like, I think people need to know, um, you know, how are things going and where are we headed? Um, I think if the answer to those questions are unclear, then, you know, fear and uncertainty and doubt is going to sort of fill the vacuum. So um, I think that becomes a bit more challenging when everybody's, um, when everybody's remote. And to Connor's point before about, yeah, leadership's about how you perform under duress. I actually resigned from my previous company during COVID. It was the middle of 2020. No one really knew how bad it was going to get. Um, I worked for a big four. Basically, we we all got told we had to take a temporary 20% pay cut. Um, if we all sort of were on board with that, we were kind of sold this story. You know, it was unlikely there'd be any redundancies or, or the story was there wouldn't be. Ultimately, the redundancies happened. Um, and then that obviously had a pretty big fallout across the organization. It was done in a way where there was like really low levels of empathy. The, the leadership at that time, like it was just radio silence from them after the redundancies were announced. It was like, it was actually really obvious. Um, and I just thought that was like, it was such a terrible experience. The Probably one of the partners I was a bit more, I was closer to, you know, he actually put himself out there. He like, he had a VC call and again, going back to leadership under duress, he it sounded like he was going off script a bit, if, if I'm honest. And he said, look, I don't have anything prepared. Just jump on this call, fire questions at me or, or, or hurl abuse, like whatever you want to do. But he was just trying to be there 
for the team. And I think I really noticed that. And that was a real contrast to what we what we had been getting from the leadership up to that point, which was like a whole lot of nothing, basically. Um, anyway, so yeah, I think I, I think changing companies, one of the bit first things I noticed is we were having all hands meetings every fortnight and we would go across um, like the whole business, right? And we would talk about what's the work in flight, what's the sales pipeline looking like and like what's the what's the company revenue? Like what are we actually um, going to get for this month? So having that level of transparency um, was completely new to me. And I think it really helped with the employee engagement at that time when everybody was when everybody was remote, right? And there was so much uncertainty with people. Uh, I think that, that that sort of really helped. Um, and it helped answer those questions, you know, how are things going and, and where are we headed? Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, that, James. And Ankin, I'll move on to you next. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I actually kind of like agree with the points is that it, it, it becomes more important during that time because people needed that help. So you need to do a bit more um, check with the team members how they're doing and, and, and those scenarios, right, when they actually affect it. And that's where the leadership gets tested, right? Um, for example, someone, um, they, they, they went, to, went back to the country after a long time, they got stuck, test came positive, they can't come back, right? What does that mean in terms of the squad, how they get getting affected? Like what kind of, um, kind of like, you know, leadership you're setting at th those points when they actually need the help, right? You can't really, like if you, if you give a, um, you know, bitter experience in those cases, that team member, at some point will move away from the organization because people remember those times as well. So it becomes really, really vital. And what I found really interesting is that um, I also kind of joined a company during this COVID time and I had to set up a team from scratch during that time and never had any experience on doing that, right? Because that seems very foreign to me. Like you have to do the interview on the, you know, in, 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 in a virtual, like in a, in a virtual conference and you need to meet the people, you need to, you need to make sure that it's a good team fit, right? How do you do all these things within, like, without not properly interacting with the person? Uh, during that time, it seems very foreign, but over the time, we got used to it. So looking back, it's like, I think there was a lot of effort. Like, sometimes you have to consciously avoid the media, the, the way you're interacting with the people, and then kind of like um, trying to trying to see that how, how that could fit in the squad and uh, everything. So... Yeah, so I think I think it changed a bit. To me, it feels like it, like the way we used to live before. Uh, I, I miss those chats, like when you sit in a cubicle and just having a very quick chat, uh, going on a you know coffee catch up, uh, and and a lot of the leadership responsibilities is kind of distributed during that time. Like you could have done that mentoring, coaching, small small bits here and there, but now it becomes very formal. To be honest, like I see mm -hmm. so many meetings. Sometimes I see like tons of meetings in the day, and I can't get out of this chair because it's just meeting one after another and people not even giving this five minutes break. Um, so what I have started then consciously doing is that all my meetings become, you know, half an hour meetings become 25 minutes because I really want to give that five minutes to that person so that he can go back to the next meeting. So I think that's the biggest change I can see, like the way people communicate, right? At every level and, and leadership gets, get takes the hit on that because we do have the most responsibility to make sure that what kind of message we are setting and how we actually leading the team. Awesome. 
Thanks. Hopefully you got a five minute break before this. <laughs> no, I'm pulled you in here. <laughs> uh, thanks for that answer. And Denise, what are your thoughts? Cool. Yeah. So I um I, I didn't uh, I didn't fully understand what you know where Connor was headed with with this question. So I originally wrote down some things that um aren't really directed at the, the meaning, but I'll, I'll I'll go through that. And there's two two other thoughts. So my my initial uh, response to this was. No, I don't think it has changed leadership. I think it's merely exacerbated the need for, for great leadership. So it's, um, it's certainly changed the way we need to communicate, the way we need to meet and, and touch base with people. But I, do, but I don't, and it's changed the, in some respects, the messages that need to be given. So COVID has, you know, as everyone knows, just been this evolving thing. It's not something any of us have experienced before. And so as more has been learnt about it, the communication needs to evolve with it. So initially it's, you know, the communication to sort of keep people calm and safe. Um, it, it needs to be more open and, and more uh, more honest, I think, about, you know, I've never experienced this before as well. I've, my James' ex experience of um, what certainly, obviously, the employees felt was insincere communication was, you know, the complete opposite of what's, you know, what's needed in, in these times. Um, if I direct it more at the sort of the this question more at what Connor's meaning of it was, though, um, one of the things that we have seen that's been positive from it is an open acceptance that work is not everybody's entire lives and that it's okay for the cat to jump on your lap or walk across the keyboard or your, your teenage kid to walk past the screen or your two-year-old to, to start screaming your mummy or daddy. And, and people are perfectly accepting of that. And I don't think that was the case pre-COVID. I don't think people, I think people expected you to leave home at home um, and to, to concentrate on, on work. So I think there, there's been um, a, a growing awareness and acceptance that people have whole lives. Um, I, one of the things, and, and it's not COVID related, but uh, one of the things that I've seen in times of uncertainty and difficulty is I've seen leaders that were empowering leaders in good times, I've seen them revert to micromanagement in tough times. Um, and so I don't know if that has happened during during COVID, but it would be unsurprising if there weren't some organisations that that went through that, because I think it's a, a human thing to to start grabbing and trying to take take control when when you're going through through tough times. So. Awesome. Some nice points. Thanks, Denise. Um, Moving on to our, our next question, which I'm going to, is Denise, actually your question next. So um, this is, as a leader, how do you find the right balance between empowerment and staying in touch with how things are going? So I'll get you to, again, give some context, get, get you talking again and give us your answer on that one. Sure. So, um, I mean, as a, as a leader, uh, an organisation is looking for me to produce a certain result or outcome. Um, and I'm now being told that I, I need to be a servant leader and I need to empower my teams and, and, um, and allow them to make decisions on how things will be, will be done. Um, there's there's a, an adage in the agile world around hire great people and get out of their way. Um, and so 
that's sort of a bit of a, you know, as a leader, that's a bit of a dichotomy, right? I'm held to account to, to, you know, to create these outcomes, but now I'm also being expected to, um, to empower teams to make decisions on my behalf. How do, how can I achieve those, those two, what seem to be diametrically opposed, uh, opposed um, goals? So um, I'd, I'd rather not give my answer straight up if that's right. I'd rather do what others have said. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, Connor, I'll move on to you next. Yeah, look, there's a good body of research that shows when um, employees are empowered at work, they're, they perform better, they're generally happier. Um, and they've got more commitment to their organization. Um, so, you know, that's, a, that's definitely a positive. Um, and from a leadership perspective, you need to empower your teams because um, decision-making can take up, you know, three quarters of my day. Um, I'm constantly making decisions, large, small, which have maybe a, a a small impact in the short term, but could have a, a massive impact in the longer term. <clears throat> and I don't always have all of the data, so I need to be able to empower my team. But it's not just a matter of um, leaving employees alone, set and forget. It's more coaching, I think. That's the key. So it's to engage with your team to, um, you know, to give them enough um, psychological safety and distance to be able to um, make decisions, fail, um, learn from it, and um, to be empowered. Thanks, and Ankin, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, this is a this is a very interesting one. Um, and it's sometimes like I remember when I was working as a let's say senior engineer long back, and then become a tech lead. In a new position, it's very hard to get used to and not doing the old things which we used to do a lot. Um, and um, I think I think the trust comes into the picture a lot as well. And what's your role in that particular position? Understanding that very well, also important. So it kind of comes into the way of working as well. So um, I think as Denise was mentioning at one point, like hire all the right people around you, right? Uh, create a well-rounded team. So let's say like in our organization, we do have a lot of challenges in terms of like, you know, establishing the way of working sometimes is that so many roles. So I guess, I think the most important part is that set the right strategy as a leader, make sure the vision is very clear with while well, well, the team understood and give them a safe environment to experiment. Don't come into those nitty gritty details to understand like how these should interact with that one or what pattern should be used or uh, how they can figure out a tactical solution. It's up to them, right? Give them that ownership, that sense of ownership is very important and then when they come back and, and produce something, then you can actually also critique the solution to a very healthy way to, to bounce back a few ideas. So when they need the help, jump in and go into depth. So have that capability in yourself, but just, just try to make sure that you give them the vision and you stay away from there and, and see how that works out. And, and it takes a few iterations to get that trust built up. Then they started to trust the vision that there's, there's the right one to be set and you started to trust the team that they're going into implementation details with, with, with great responsibility as well. Nice, thanks for that. And James? Yeah, look, I think probably my answer is going to echo what Anken's been said. I, I agree with a lot of those points and also some of what Denise said. So 
I think like if you can hire the right people, you almost 80% of the way there. And I guess when I, when I, what I mean by that is not just hiring for like technical skills and their ability to apply that, but just that like their whole ability to work effectively in a team with other people. Um, often it's harder to hire for that side of a person than it is the, the technical skill side. I think when they land in their role, they need to understand what are my expectations and they need to know how am I going in my role. Um, and, you know, if you can make clear what the expectations are for a person in their role, then hopefully, as Denise said, all you need to do is really get out of their way. Um, and, yeah, we heard psychological safety there as well. And it, it does assume that they are working within a culture of, of psychological safety. You know, if people don't feel safe, they're not going to realise their potential. Um, and I think going back to hiring for the right skills, you know, we in consulting particularly, we really value people who can define clarity from situations in clients where there's a lot of uncertainty. I think that's a really important consulting skill to have. Um, and yeah, as I said before, if you can get out of their way, uh, yeah, ho hopefully you're most of the way there in getting that right. I think it's still important though that you can't just you know send them on their way and never speak to them again right like you need to come back and, and you need to check in and there's two parts to this there's the coaching part that Connor talked about and that's probably focused more on the individual you know how are they going in their role are they happy what's their headspace like um, and then secondly like how's the actual work going from a delivery perspective are they delivering the right outcomes for the client do they have any blockers etc so um yeah, that through through those sorts of check-ins, you can form that sort of view over time of the performance of that individual. Um, and then that will allow you to sort of get an understanding of like how often you actually need to be checking in. Some people are really autonomous. Um, they do really well when left to their own devices. And then other, other times people need probably a little bit more supervision. So, yeah. Perfect. Is there anything else you wanted to put in there, Denise, or add to that? Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're great answers. There, um, a couple of things I'd, I'd add. So um, I, I've i actually seen some cases where using the old adage of hiring great people and getting out of their way has been taken too literally, where, where leaders have just expected people to figure it out in a vacuum um, rather than, you know, providing the sort of coaching and support and guidance that, you know, the, uh, Connor and James and Anken has been, have been speaking about. Um, and I also, I actually think um, empowering teams and um, giving teams, uh, you know, delegating responsibility to teams actually takes or should take more time from a leader than, um, than command and control um, because they, they will be having these one-on-ones, they'll be having these coaching sessions, they'll be listening for roadblocks that are in other parts of the organization and taking those problems away from the team and actively getting involved in removing those those problems um, so i actually think it's um it's more intensive on a leader's time to to be a servant leader than it is to be a command and control leader and as i mentioned earlier and it's starting to move on to our next question is if you if you do all these things um and if failure is seen as a learning opportunity, then teams will be will not will not be afraid to come to you, and and tell you that they've got issues. Um, and so that that again comes back to the the, the trust and the the psychological safety that everyone's been speaking about. So. Perfect. Thanks, for that Denise. And 
as, as you just mentioned, moving on to our final question, which was put forward by Anken, which is how important is it to fail and be vulnerable to be an effective leader? So I'll start with you, Anken, and get to you to give us your answer. Sure, sure. Um, I'll probably try not to give the answer because I'd love to know everyone's thought. Yeah. Um, I just want to bring back this one, right? So what I have noticed over the period of time, people, people talk about the positive things a lot and this celebrates the, let's say, great release, right? Um, a great initiative has been accomplished, but we don't really talk enough about some of the learning experiences from a failure, for example. Like when you try something new, there are most likely a chance that you, you're going to fail. So I just want to put that question to everyone. Like, what do you think is like failure means for an effective leader? Like when you say effective leader, what kind of, what kind of image we are trying to portray? Like that person is making always the right decisions. Um, there, is a, there is a key attribute for an uh, effective leader, which is you got to be able to be curious. You got to be able to experiment. You got to challenge the status quo and you got to try something different, right? If something is working, uh, are, we, are we challenging ourselves enough to, to try even more effective path to solve probably the same problem? Um, so I, I would love to know everyone's thought, like what do you think about failure and how important that is, is to be an effective leader? Nice, thanks. We'll, we'll pass it on to you, James. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I'm going to say that phrase again, psychological safety. I feel like this question is really what it, this is kind of speaking to. So, um, you know, when people feel safe, they feel like they can speak up, you know, if, if they don't feel as though they're going to be embarrassed or ridiculed or, or rejected or whatever. So, um, and I think where psychological safety ties into failure or the, um, the some of the, the failures that leadership may have is, um, fostering that psychological safety culture comes from leaders leaders who aren't simply uh in the case of their failures deflecting and blaming and lying and avoiding right so they're basically saying hey um i've made this mistake i'm basically speaking openly about my failures um and that's with a view that like you, you know the example gets set from the top so if other people see that then that's going to reduce their own fear and apprehension about you know, speaking up because ultimately, if you don't want to speak up, you you're you're afraid you're going to fail in some way. As I was saying before, so uh, I think that's an important thing. Um, I think leaders should be able to acknowledge when they're wrong and and admit their mistakes. Uh, you know, ultimately, people can smell bullshit from a hundred miles away. So, um, yes, yeah, super important. Um, I would also say though, like it's okay to fail. But I would, I would say by the time you like are getting into a position of leadership, hopefully you've got a lot of failures under your belt already in the form of, you know, past mistakes, their battle scars you can look to, to, you know, help, help guide, guide you going forward. But, you know, having said that, you're always going to be making mistakes in the future. It's almost unavoidable. So, yeah, I think as I was saying before, so long as you can be upfront about it, um, yeah, that's that's going to go a long way in setting the right right culture um, for for the team. Perfect, thanks for that. And Connor. Yeah, if you don't have a tolerance for failure, you're going to find it very hard to be creative or innovative. Um, you know, again, back to that psychological safety point. You know, there's the eponymous Google study which um, measured how um, what made their high-performing teams tick, and it wasn't 
the blend of the best engineers or um, you know any other factors. It was that there was a psychological safety. There was a, a an emotional trust in the team that they could try and iterate over problems and they wouldn't be um, ridiculed or um, yeah, they wouldn't have any um, long-term, um, there wouldn't be any long-term um, problems with their approach. Um, for me, to Ankan's point, um, you know, what does, what does failure mean uh, as a leader? And how has it affected me? I've learned a lot of lessons, a lot of battle scars over the um, 20 ish years of my career as a technologist. And I've worked in a, quite a few organizations and I've taken the, the best parts and dispensed with the not so good parts. Um, so that's a that's a skill. That's something I've learned from my failures. Um, yeah, just don't repeat the same mistakes. <laughs> Thanks, Nicola. And Denise, I'll get you there. Yeah, I'm going to sort of break this into two parts. So, for, uh, and I want to tack the last part first. So, uh, I think it's incredibly important to be vulnerable as a as a as a leader and to be an effective leader. It it shows people that you're you're real um, and that you're you're humble and 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 approachable. Um, I think saying I don't know as a leader is perfectly acceptable. Um, you shouldn't you know, be expected and pretend to know to know everything. And I think also being open about you know, your own personal fa failures is is uh, a, a really um, powerful way to build trust with the team and to have teams feel like they can um, that they that it's okay for them to, to fail and there'll be no recriminations. Um, I just see, saw Connor put his hand up. It's probably relevant to something I just said. So, yeah. Yeah, go back. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Look, I, I agree. Um, you know, the ability to say um, I don't know is is really powerful. I've got three management tools: yes, no, I don't know, and I always reserve the right to change my mind based on better information. Um, so, you know, that's. Something that's uh, I find really useful from working with my with my teams, and I have had um, feedback from my direct reports. You know, but we told you this last week. I said, well, yes, but we moved on. You give me better information, and then I'm I'm not going to stick with a particular approach. Let's uh, I'm going to be vulnerable and say, yeah, I was wrong, or this is better. Let's go to this decision. And for the first part of the question, I'm going to steal an answer from Bethan Timmons of Equal Experts, who I drove to Canberra with last night. That's why I was talking to her about this. And her view was if you, you're using a hypothesis-driven approach um, and you're experimenting, failure is just one possible result. In fact, it's not really failure. It's just a result. So, so the result of the experiment will show you whether your hypothesis was correct or not. Um, and and so it's it, I would change the, the question almost to how important is it to experiment and to be open to that experiment revealing revealing a failure and then using that as a as a learning opportunity for a new hypothesis and a new experiment. Awesome, I like I like that answer. Uh, is there anything else anyone has to to add add on to that? Or I think we I think we've 
I think we've covered everything pretty well. So uh, look, I think we'll leave it there for now. We've actually gone, we've actually gone for quite a bit. I don't want to keep anyone too late, but I just want to appreciate um, and thank everyone for their answers. You know, I really think that there are a lot of you know current leaders, people moving into leadership, and then and then people wherever they are, you know, in their leadership career can hopefully uh, benefit from you know all the answers you've all given. Um, and just want to thank you all for your time and. Thank you all for listening and I look forward to catching you all next time on the Evolution Exchange.